Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And uh, last time on the podcast, we talked with Dr. Jessica Zucker about miscarriage, which is, as we established, definitely a taboo topic in our society. It's really difficult for people to talk about, to acknowledge, to even reach out and seek help. And in our conversation about infertility today, it's sort of a continuation of that theme. Infertility is not uncommon or struggles with fertility in general are not uncommon. But as we'll talk about in this episode and as we saw in our research, what's so heartbreaking about it is the fact that no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what part of the world you live in or what time you lived Women have experienced so much shame, both internally and from other people, over the issue of infertility. Yeah, I mean, in all of these conversations that we've had, not only about uh, miscarriage and then today about infertility, um, but also other times we've talked about pregnancy and just women's bodies in general, there's always this theme mm-hmm. of the limitations of what we can and do and feel comfortable talking about. Yeah. Um, so this is one where it is something that affects so many of us, but we don't hear about it nearly as much as we should. And when we do hear about it, it tends to be from the perspective of a woman's problem or it's the woman's fault. That's historically what how this issue's been framed. And as we'll talk about, this is not a woman's problem. This is this is everyone's problem. If you are a person who wants to have children, you very well might be affected by infertility. So just to cover the basics of what um, infertility is, it's medically defined as a difficulty conceiving a pregnancy after a year of unprotected sex. But because as we've talked about in the podcast before, obviously our fertility declines with age. So for women over 35, doctors recommend checking in if they've been unsuccessful getting pregnant after six months of trying. That's right. Because for perspective, most fertile couples, according to researchers, do conceive within six cycles when they're using timed intercourse. Doesn't that sound so sexy and romantic? Six cycles. Uh, we use your timed intercourse in your in your cycles. They're talking about menstrual cycles, right. I'm assuming. Not, yeah, not moon cycles. <laughs> Although, I mean, there you go. It's still technically the same. Yeah, you could time it by the moon if you wanted. Yeah. You know, full moon, don't come a knocking. <laughs> or no, please do. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> um, and of course, related under this umbrella of infertility is impaired fecundity, which encompasses non-surgical sterility, which is uh, an impossibility to conceive, sub-fecundity, which is uh, conception is difficult but not impossible, and, quote, long interval without Conception. So there's a lot of different types of fertility struggles wrapped up in our conversation today. And basically, this happens. Infertility is said to happen when there's a breakdown somewhere in the conception process. It could be one place. It could be multiple places. But, you know, brief run through (laughs) refresher biology course for you. The conception process starts with ovulation fertilization, then the fertilized egg takes a little swan dive through the fallopian tube toward the uterus and then has to implant itself successfully in the uterus. Well, and because it wasn't until the mid 20th century that we really started to understand all of the steps in this process, humans just made up all sorts of reasons why infertility would occur, which has only ingrained a lot of the stigma um, that we're going to talk about that is still very much alive and well today. Um, but here's the thing. In addition to all of those steps where things could possibly go awry, just getting pregnant in and of itself, <laughs> despite what um, abstinence only sex education might lead you to believe, uh, getting pregnant is... It's hard to do. I mean, if you think about it, you have this window in our menstrual cycle during which conception is even possible, i.e. 
ovulation, and the probability of conception is only 25% each month. Now, going back to sex education, if you are listening to this and you're sexually active, uh, this is not Kristen and Caroline endorsing <laughs> you to just go have unprotected sex. <laughs> um, but I think it's just worth understanding the challenges that can naturally occur with getting pregnant. Yeah, because it's estimated that 10% of normally fertile couples don't manage to conceive within the first year. So it's it's not uncommon to struggle with these issues. And so let's dive into some sex-based stats and facts, and that's biological sex, not literally getting it on. So like we said earlier... Culturally, we tend to just sort of frame this as the fault of the woman or the woman's problem. But depending on what statistics you're looking at, about a third of the time, it's the man's fertility issues causing problems with conception. About another third of the time, it is something going on in the woman's body. But the remaining third, give or take, it's either both partners or an unknown cause. So if we look just at men's fertility, um, for instance, just to get a better grasp on that, the 2002 National Survey of Family Growth found that 7.5% of all sexually experienced men under 45 saw a fertility doctor at some point. And within that group, 18% were diagnosed with a fertility problem. But that doesn't necessarily account for all of the dudes who have had fertility issues. That's just people who have sought out treatment for it. Yeah, and male fertility-specific problems include abnormal sperm production, function, and delivery. And those can be caused by problems like undescended testicles, genetic disorders like cystic fibrosis, health issues like diabetes, and also retrograde ejaculation, which is when semen doesn't go out, it goes into the bladder instead. I had never heard of that before. Me neither. But I cringed when I read it because I don't know if it's painful, but it sounds like it's uncomfortable. So things that can contribute to male fertility problems that that actually actually, contribute. (laughs) Right. We should actually actually contribute uh, include overexposure to heat. Now, I had heard this stuff like anecdotally about laptops. Like I had seen some studies in the past couple of years about like men don't leave your mamas. Don't let your babies grow up to put their laptops on their laps because it can affect your fertility. No. And and this is not funny, but it's it's true. Uh, like things like hot tubs and saunas can affect fertility. And a condition uh, that also affects fertility is when you basically have varicose veins in your testes, having those enlarged veins makes your testes warmer and heat degrades the quality and quantity of sperm. And also you've got to worry about exposure to overexposure, I should say, to chemicals like pesticides, radiation and steroids. So if we look at what contributes to female fertility, we have to think again about all of those steps along the way from ovulation all the way to implantation. So if we go back to ovulation, you might have disorders that prevent the ovaries from releasing eggs to begin with or something called primary ovarian insufficiency, which is when your ovaries begin to fail before the age of 40. And then, of course, there are hormonal disorders like polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is the most common cause of female infertility. And we've talked about PCOS before on the podcast. Uh, there's a Stuff Mom Never Told You video breaking down how PCOS works if you're not familiar with it. And um, in, a, in a very small nutshell, what that leads to is your body creating a surplus of androgen hormones which leads to irregular ovulation. Yeah, and you've also got hormone issues like your body producing too much testosterone, again, a male hormone, or prolactin, which we've talked about on the podcast before, which is actually a hormone that helps you breastfeed. And, of course, problems with your thyroid gland, which is part of your handy-dandy endocrine system, and we've talked about that before on the podcast, too. Other major factors include uterine or cervical abnormalities. You might have issues with the shape, the opening, or the mucus happening therein. Uh, fibroids, that's a major issue because it can block fallopian tubes and distort the uterine cavity. And we've done a Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast all about fibroids, if you're not up on those. That's true. And uh, women also might struggle with pelvic adhesions, which is scar tissue that binds organs together after surgery. Um, endometriosis is also a huge factor, as is inflammation of the fallopian tubes. And to once more promote past stuff I've never told you podcast, you should definitely listen to the one on endometriosis or watch our video about it because it affects 
so many women and it takes an average of at least going to five different doctors to get the correct diagnosis. And it's a major contributor to infertility as well. Um, but then there are also other medical issues that can lead to infertility, like celiac, Cushing's disease, uh, sickle cell anemia, diabetes, and also STDs like gonorrhea or chlamydia, which if left untreated, can cause big trouble in your reproductive tract and possibly lead to pelvic inflammatory disease. Yeah. Oh, boy. Definitely, definitely practice safe sex. It's just and then that just means it's one less thing to worry about for, for so many reasons. Yes. Please, please practice safe sex. Um, but a couple of risk factors, regardless of sex, include cancer and its subsequent treatment, radiation and chemotherapy, uh, age. We mentioned age earlier. Women's fertility, for instance, starts declining in their 30s, men in their 40s. And this is sort of a growing issue for people looking to have children because about 20 percent of women in the United States specifically are having their first children after age 35. So that just means that age is a growing contributing factor to infertility. And uh, among those couples where the woman is over 35, a third report having fertility problems. And then, of course, tobacco and alcohol use don't help matters. Um, being overweight can lead to fertility issues and can also affect men's sperm count. By the same token, being Underweight also isn't great for fertility as well um, and can lead to a co-occurring issue of amenorrhea, which can also be sparked by over-exercise or excess stress. Yeah. Stress is always such a culprit of so many things. Yeah. And we'll touch on the issue of stress here again in a little bit because there is also that, I don't know if it's a stereotype or the assumption that stress makes you unfertile. And it's not quite that black and white. So how common is this? Well, um, very common, to put it in layman's terms. Um, it, it's important to remember, though, that rates are going to differ depending on factors like the age group of the people included, the number of people in the surveys and studies. Um, but worldwide, around 2 to 10% of couples just don't have any children. Um, and 10 to 25% struggle with what's called secondary infertility. And that's when you have your first kid, everything's fine, but then you have a really hard time getting pregnant the second time around. Yeah, so there was this huge global meta study in 2010 that found that there's nearly 50 million couples worldwide who were unable to have a child after five years of trying. They found that nearly 2% of women 20 to 44 years old who wanted to have kids were unable to have their first child. That's primary infertility. And about 10.5% of women experienced secondary infertility, which is what Kristen just mentioned. But the thing is, they also pointed out that those rates were similar to what they had been 20 years earlier. So we're not seeing a ton of advancement in terms of in terms of sort of stemming that infertility tide, basically. And it is kind of counterintuitive when you look at those age breakdowns, because for women between 20 and 24 years old, primary infertility rates are higher compared to older women. But that pattern is reversed for secondary infertility, where if you are younger and you have had that first successful childbirth, then it's not as hard to get pregnant a second time as it is if you are older and you have a successful first childbirth and then try to get pregnant a second time. Yeah, and if we look globally, primary infertility is actually higher in North Africa and the Middle East when compared to a region like Latin America or the Caribbean. And secondary infertility in sub-Saharan Africa specifically affects more than 30% of women between the ages of 25 and 49. And if we zero in just on the U.S., 6% of married women between the ages of 15 and 44 are infertile. But if you look at all women trying to get pregnant, regardless of relationship status, 12% of that age group struggles with infertility issues. And I appreciated that source for making that distinction between or even examining the distinction between married women and women in any relationship status trying to get pregnant. Right. Because... 
so much of this data is obviously um, very heteronormative um, and you could also say like cis sexist as well. I don't think that we saw any studies on like trans fertility issues at all. Um, and also a lot operating under the assumption that all women want to get pregnant and especially if women are married. Um, so I think it, those kinds of contexts are are good to keep in mind as well yeah, as we go through this. Sure. And it's not just women in relationships who want to have children. Right, I mean, there right. are women who are not in relationships who, for instance, might be seeking a sperm donor and want to get pregnant that way and then have struggles with it. So it, I think it is important to kind of break out of the mindset of like, okay, we're only going to research people who are in relationships because what is... I mean, that's not the full picture then, I would think. Yeah. And also uh, only research people who are in straight relationships, too. There's not you don't see a lot of variation within like the sexual orientation of um, people in these studies as well. So just a little background, demographic background on the available data that we're working with. Right. And as we move into talking about treatment, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning how health in general but also access to health care and socioeconomics are such a huge factor. Um, there was a study way back when I was five years old in 1988 uh, that found that the only group to suffer a rise in infertility rates since the 1960s was women under 24. And that was thanks to a spike in STDs. That goes back to what we mentioned about chlamydia and gonorrhea, that those Conditions are nothing to laugh at or sniff at. You need to practice safe sex and then successfully treat these conditions in order to keep your fertility from suffering. Yeah, I remember when that study came out (laughs) and reading about it um, in the New York Times, as I did every day as a four-year-old. Baby Kristen. Yes, yes. Little baby glasses. Yeah. Little Fisher-Price glasses. Yes, yes. Little baby cup of coffee. And you were just like, this is is such Mm. a shame. Mm-hmm. This is such a shame kids these days need to practice safe sex. <laughs> exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> right out of your toddler mouth. Just like candy. <laughs> Stealing candy from baby Kristen. Um, and of course, doctors know that overall poor health can contribute to infertility problems. And this is a huge deal when you think about, and I mean, again, I'm speaking as an American, but this is a huge deal when you talk about people who don't have access to doctors or health care or insurance. And yes, we have... The Affordable Care Act, but I personally know plenty of people who still don't have health insurance and therefore still do not have access to a regular doctor. And then it comes back to to the cost of fertility treatments, which are insanely prohibitive. They're definitely not accessible to everyone because they can run you more than 10 grand. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of uh, one of the stories that we were reading about infertility treatments and this couple that had saved up ever since they got married for their future children's college fund and had put all this money away. And they ended up spending all of that money just trying to get pregnant because those fertility treatments are so mm-hmm. expensive, not to mention all of the travel involved. If you live somewhere that might not have um, this kind of treatments available. So speaking of which, in 2009, the World Health Organization classified infertility as a disease. And part of the motivation for that was paving the way for more insurers to cover treatments because as of our, the most recent data we found at least, only 15 states require insurance coverage for fertility treatments. So a lot of this is like out-of-pocket costs, right? Yeah, that, which is, I mean, that's huge. It's a huge cost. Um, and treatments can involve assisted reproductive technology. And this is any treatment in which the egg and sperm are handled. And of course, IVF, in vitro fertilization, falls under that. It's the most common type of assisted reproductive technology. And it involves retrieving multiple eggs, fertilizing them in the lab, and implanting the embryos in the uterus. And there was just an article that I just shot over to Kristen last night that there's apparently a trial starting in the UK for a controversial IVF technique to allow women 30 and older. And I'm like, Oh God, I'm, I'm 30 and older. Um, to get their eggs quote unquote rejuvenated. And basically this involves taking mitochondria from immature cells and sticking them into mature cells to be used 
egg cells, that is, to be used for IVF. And this matters because aging mitochondria, which is like the cell's little powerhouses, contribute to IVF failure. So if this succeeds, it could potentially, you know, maybe stave off the repeated costs of going back over and over again to try IVF. And it seems like the primary controversy with this is that it's very unclear at this point that it could even be successful. Yeah. They're not sure that it could could work. Um now, if we look at treatment for women specifically, there, of course, are fertility drugs to stimulate ovulation. Um, there's intrauterine insemination where healthy sperm is placed directly into the uterus. And there's also surgery to correct uterine problems. And for men, there are treatments for various infections that might affect the reproductive system as well as sexual dysfunction. You can also undergo hormone treatments and surgery to correct an obstructed vas deferens. I used to be on a trivia team called Uptown John and the vas deferens. Um, or that condition that we talked about earlier where the enlarged veins in the testes make them too hot. And, of course, uh, also the procedure and the process of obtaining sperm for that assisted reproductive technology. But according to research from the CDC, a majority of infertility treatments fail. 57% of IVF cycles using women's own eggs failed, uh, whereas procedures using donor eggs do better. They had only a 37% fail rate. And not surprisingly, this has psychological side effects as well. There was a Harvard study that we were looking at um, finding how women who have difficulty getting pregnant can be as depressed as those who have major heart problems or cancer. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like, think of your friends who all they or maybe it's you, you know, all you've wanted your whole life is to have kids. You know, I'm I'm not on that wavelength, but I know many people who um you know, for instance, I had a coworker years ago who had Picos and before she was engaged, before she was married, she was with the man she knew she wanted to be with forever. She's like, let's just start trying because I might never get pregnant. And I know that, you know, watching friends struggle with that idea of like, I want nothing more to, than to be a parent uh, and to have that be a difficult process. Of course, I can totally see how it would lead to massive depression and stress. And it's that stress that can affect whether and how long people stick it out for for treatment. Uh, Harvard Medical School researchers found that 34% of patients under 40 with insurance for at least three IVF cycles dropped out after only one or two. They also found that 68% of patients over 40 gave up before exhausting their insurance coverage for the procedure. And they, they write about how this whole thing, it just swallows your life up. I mean, you become a slave to your monthly cycle if you're tracking your ovulation and your periods. And it's, they talk about that, that extreme disappointment, like disappointments too, week of a word when you get your period the next month because you've put so much time, energy, and potentially money into this process. But of course, a doctor saying, "Uh, just relax, isn't going to help matters. Those same Harvard researchers did find that lowering anxiety was linked with improved pregnancy rates and that patients with psychological support do feel less distressed about treatment and are quicker to try other options like donor eggs, sperm, or adoption. And this is a big reason why it's important for us to talk about this even more, because uh, a lot of times if you are experiencing infertility, you don't want to tell anyone about it. Right. And the downside of that is that you don't have a support system mm-hmm. in that case, which research, you know, finds can can be really, really, really helpful. Yeah. And we should say again and emphasize that depression and stress do not cause infertility, but Researchers have found that they are associated, that people who manage to alleviate their anxiety, stress and depression, they put all of that under the term of distress, um, have had in studies more success finally getting pregnant. But the thing is, as much as we know about the biological factors that do and don't contribute to male and female infertility, there are still so many myths surrounding it and so much moralizing 
and stigma that go back millennia and, and, and essentially have been, you know, shaming infertility ever since. Yeah, and we'll talk about that after a quick break. These days, everybody needs a website, but that might seem kind of intimidating because, hello, you're building a website, but not so with Squarespace. Squarespace sites look professionally designed regardless of skill level and no coding is required. Squarespace offers you intuitive and easy to use tools and you can get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code MOMSTUFF to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, you should. And now, back to the show. I feel like a Stuff Mom Never Told You episode would almost be remiss if it didn't at some point go to ancient Egypt. <laughs> yeah, we're not laughing, but it's true. It's true. Um, so Egyptians had a goddess of infertility who, horrifyingly enough, was also the goddess of funerals and afterlife rituals. Oh. So right off the bat... Nothing uh, but the worst connotations around women who struggle with fertility issues. And they even had this weird test. They would force feed a beer covered woman dates. And if she vomited, she was fertile, which just, of course, makes me think of the last crusade where Sala catches the date in his hand and says bad dates. Sweet. I got in today's Indiana Jones reference. Indiana Jones and Monty Python. You're on a roll, Caroline. Oh, my God. I really am. And we should say, too, that this timeline is coming from two sources. Bustle, a great in-depth article over at Bustle, and also a timeline from American Radio Works. And they also looked at ancient India, for instance, who thought that perhaps women were possessed by the goddess of poverty and corruption if she couldn't have children. Oh, man. Um, things didn't get much sunnier over in China because if a woman was infertile, and I'm assuming the husband had means, uh, you could just use a concubine instead. Well, that's fine. Yeah, just bring in a pinch hitter. Yeah, and in Rome, just divorce your wife over it. Here, we'll let you out of this contract pretty easily. But it's in ancient Greece where we start to see the origins, maybe not overwhelmingly, but the origins of infertility being thought of as like a medical condition and not necessarily a moral failing all the time. Overall, though, the responsibility for fertility did still lie with the woman. And old Hippocrates had lots of ideas about what led to infertility. Um, he attributed it to things like weight, a tightly closed cervix, or menstrual retention, which mm-hmm. Hippocrates, come on. So this whole idea, and this idea of menstrual retention would stick around for quite some time. Um, they thought that your period blood would just hang out inside of you. It wouldn't come out. It would just hang out and uh, prevent you from being able to have babies. Just sloshing around. Yeah. Just sloshing around. But, I mean, you could try praying to Asclepius, who's the god of medicine. There were also all of these different types of probes, uh, like literally getting things just stuck up inside of you, trying to, like, open up that that reluctant cervix. Uh, and there were also sorts of weird, like, herbal cocktails that you could try. I bet there are still so many herbal cocktails out there for infertility as well. Um, in, in the medieval times, not surprisingly, things took an even darker turn with the publication of the Malleus Maleficarum, which uh, we've talked about before. It's translated to the Hammer of the Witches. And this text, as you might assume from the book's title, blamed infertility on witches and or the devil. But they also thought that it could be an indication that you yourself are a witch. She's a witch. Uh, there's no winning. There's no winning. Yeah. Like, why should a woman who struggles with having children be considered evil? I, I, It blows my mind. Because that's your function, Caroline. That's true. Well, other culprits during this time included a wandering womb, which Kristen and I, we have that video, Kristen, where you and I were looking for our 
crazy wandering hysterical uteruses by the train tracks. That's right. And I ended up finding yours. Yes. She gave it to me for Christmas. Yeah. And if you don't know what we're talking about, listeners, why aren't you following us on Instagram? <laughs> I know. Um, you also could have a soft womb, which means that it's too soft and wet to be able to snag that sperm. It's not Velcro-y enough. And a giveaway, if a woman had a soft womb, was that she cried all the time. When I hear soft womb, I think of a soft-boiled egg. Oh, come on. I eat boiled eggs for breakfast. Um, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Okay. You you also might, they thought, suffer from a suffocated uterus, which was an idea similar to Hippocrates' idea of menstrual retention. And in terms, though, of this moralizing aspect, um, this is going farther back. But if we look at Christianity and the whole doctrine of uh, female piety in the Bible and the Old Testament, there's a story of Hannah who was barren and she begged God for a child. And finally, because she was such a pious woman, God rewarded her with six more children. And this fosters this whole idea that women without kids need to work extra hard to prove their piety and that infertility is punishment for your sins and is reflected on women's morality. It probably could be traced back to to Eve's curse and on and on. Yeah. And much like the Greeks were like, just pray to Asclepius. Uh, the Christians urged women to try praying it away or fasting it away. And yet it then evolved into a view of infertile women as promiscuous, masculine and bossy. Yeah, because I mean, what how more unpious can you be than if you are both masculine and sleeping around? And bossy. Well, and bossy. I mean, bossy that goes without saying. Yeah, well, you know. doing it. Um, and so during the Renaissance, we've got this growing medical and popular acceptance of the idea that it could also be men's fault. There was this concern, you guys, about cold, thin, watery or feeble sperm. There was a concern over whether you had a short penis and also what you were eating. This didn't prevent, though, Catherine de' Medici from being blamed when she and her husband, King Henry II, could not have kids, despite the fact that he apparently had a malformed penis. Catherine was still blamed. So good for popular culture during this time where we're finally being like, I wonder if men could be to blame ever for this. Uh, but it, yeah, it didn't help her. Yeah. I mean, there was still uh, the belief that it would it would have to be blamed on the woman's body shape, her cervical shape, womb temperatures, and that infertility could then lead to mental disturbances. So we're still living in the whole mentality of the hysterical uterus and all of the the lady brain problems that that can cause. But finally, in the 17th century, we start to learn a little bit about how this works. Uh, we see sperm under a microscope for the first time. And so this leads to more examination of male fertility. And by the mid-1700s, we understood fertilization better and infertility was slightly less moralized. But now there is just an idea that your menstruation was unbalanced in some way. So treatments include stimulating sexual pleasure, which was thought to be helpful to conception. Yeah, I thought for sure. I was like, I must have read that wrong because so much of what we read and talk about for the podcast goes back to like sexual pleasure is super wrong. Women should never experience sexual pleasure, but it's interesting that it comes in in terms of fertility. Like, well, maybe it can't work unless somebody's having a good time. You got to balance that menstruation somehow. Yeah, I know. I hate when my menstruation is unbalanced. But by the 1800s, we see more surgical advancements and the further development of the idea that infertility is a mechanical problem caused by cervical disorders or a malposition of the uterus. But you still have ideas about, quote unquote, luxurious living and women's misbehavior persisting. And that includes heavy mental activity that could potentially damage your other organs. Yeah, basically, there is a longstanding idea that if 
a woman thinks too much, then she renders herself infertile because, I mean, I guess our brain heats up our wombs and then that just ruins everything. Basically, it puts our uteruses in a microwave. And No, I'm picturing like uh, an Industrial Revolution era factory where like wheels and gears and cogs are just like working overtime and there's all this steam and like suddenly the machine just craps out. Oh. And that machine is your womb. It's your womb. Uh, but in 1876, we do get a New York doctor who's the first to argue that husbands' gonorrhea infections could be probably, potentially, maybe likely causing their wives to be sterile. Yeah, because, I mean, with the Industrial Revolution, speaking of which, in urbanization, you have more men visiting prostitutes and the rise of STDs with that. But, of course, probably... The blame for that ultimately would go back to the women and not inevitably not the men who were paying for their services. Um, but in the early 20th century, there are lots of discoveries around hormones. There's a test developed for blocked fallopian tubes and guidelines published for analyzing sperm count for male fertility. So we're starting to figure some things out in a real way. And in 1944, famed Dr. John Rock reports the first U.S. fertilization of human eggs in a lab dish. This is in vitro fertilization. And at the same time, the public is demanding fertility treatments. They're like, listen, we want babies and we want babies now and you're going to fix this. Isn't it ironic then that Dr. John Rock would then go on to be so instrumental in developing the very first Oral contraceptive for women? Oh, my God. The more you know, go back and <laughs> to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com and listen to the episode, The Father of Birth Control. Love it. Um, and in the late 20th century, we see the first in vitro babies being born in the UK and the US. We see sperm injected into the egg for the first time. The first successful pregnancy from a frozen egg. I believe that was at a fertility place here in Atlanta. And rising at the same time, though, you've got parallel dialogues around the desire to wait to have kids because, you know, maybe you're pursuing an education or a career, the desire to be child free. So, you know, more than ever during this time, women are starting to be like, hey, maybe I don't want to have kids. But you start to see almost in response to that, but certainly developing at the same time, more and more media driven anxieties about that decision to put off kids and the fact that you might wind up unable to have them. And OK, so I meant to go back and read some of the media coverage that came out when the first in vitro baby, I be- believe her name was Louise Brown, um, was born in the UK to offer some more background to the media anxiety about not having kids, because if I remember correctly what I've read about that, there was a lot of controversy about the so-called in vitro babies and people saying back at the time that, oh, we're just now playing God and this is, you know, technology gone awry. And so it seems like regardless of what's what angle we're looking at reproduction, it's like, no, this is helping someone have a child right. that they want to have. But then if we want to delay having a child that we may or may not want to have, then that's not okay either. And this just leads us into this conversation around the infertility stigma and how a lot of times it does seem like a total catch 22 where there, like you said, Caroline, there's, there's kind of no winning also because there's this longstanding misconception that it's, it tends to be, an issue with the woman's body. Whereas, as we noted at the top of the podcast, it's like a third of the time it's happening with the penis, a third of the time it's with the vagina, and the other third of the time, who knows what it is. Yeah, and we wanted to definitely look globally. We definitely wanted to look outside of the United States for this conversation because, like I said at the top of the podcast, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, shame around infertility exists. Despite the fact, like Kristen said, that the fertility issues between men and women are pretty much equal. And so we were reading these articles. One was from the World Health Organization and one was from Newsweek that focused specifically on stigma in developing countries. However, that being said, I think that despite the fact that these articles focused on developing countries, these issues can be extrapolated to apply to women all over the world. Because 
women might face everything from ostracism, being considered inauspicious at weddings. Um, in some Muslim regions, women can only go out if they have children with them or a, or a chaperone of some kind, but forget running errands solo, ranging all the way to abandonment and even abuse. And then there's the whole idea that you are a failure in society, because, of course, this is the role of women. You know, you have to have kids. And this was something that Ria Simbuya, who's the founder of the Joyce Fertility Support Center in Uganda, was talking about. And she said, quote, our culture demands that for a woman to be socially acceptable, she should have at least one biological child. Almost all cultures across Africa put emphasis on women having children. Marriage without children is considered a failure of the two individuals. Yeah, and talking about this, William Ambelet, who works with Gink Institute for Fertility Technology in Belgium, said that if you're infertile in some cultures, you're less than a dog. In the Hindu religion, uh, as one example went, a woman without a child, particularly a son, can't go to heaven. Uh, she needs a son to perform burial ritual- rituals. And similar attitudes persist in China and Vietnam, where some believe childless folks' souls can't rest for eternity. And in China, again, children are seen as gifts from God. So people who are childless can be viewed as unworthy or as sinners, which makes it even harder to seek treatment, even if you can afford it. Even if you have the money to go seek treatment, just that stigma of needing help prevents people from doing so. And then there's a whole angle of, well, if you're infertile, you are a socioeconomic burden. And this was something uh, that World Health Organization, Reproductive Health and Research Department head, Dr. Cheryl Vanderpool, was talking about saying how, uh, you know, if you don't have kids who can then grow up to take care of you and also have kids who can do household chores and also contribute to local economies, then you're just going to be a drain, not only on your community, but also to your wider family who becomes deeply disappointed for the loss of what she calls continuity of the family, as well as, again, the contribution to the community. So this only intensifies feelings of guilt and shame. Yeah. And the, the idea that you're a failure in your marriage. I mean, the, the World Health Organization article quoted a Ugandan woman who said, women like me often have to bear the extramarital relationships that our husbands tend to have. I have overheard other women talking about us as being cursed. There's an idea, especially in polygamous cultures, that it's completely acceptable for a man to either divorce his wife or take another wife if that culture permits polygamy, simply in the effort to have biological children. There was one example talking about a particular ethnic group in Mozambique where it's common for women to commit adultery in an attempt to get pregnant rather than face exclusion from traditional ceremonies and social activities. But if you are living in a society where it is acceptable for the husband to leave you and father children with other women in the case of infertility, then he's going to be likely, unlikely, excuse me, to support your efforts to seek fertility treatments or probably support you at all. And with all of this potential extramarital sex having going on, this can also lead to STDs. I mean, if you look at the developing nation in general, there are, of course, issues regardless of fertility with untreated STDs. If you have condom taboos um, and just the, the cost of condoms and contraceptives being too high and also infections from female genital mutilation. Yeah. And similarly, uh, there are many women across the developing world who face infections and complications from either births or abortions in unsanitary hospitals. And, you know, we mentioned earlier that sperm count and quality can be affected by overexposure to certain chemicals. You've got to worry about toxins like lead, which is high in places like Mexico City and Cairo, or the chemical dioxin, which is sprayed on crops. But if you get to the point to where you know that you could benefit from treatment. There are still cultural hurdles that you would have to cross because, of course, some cultures consider masturbation evil. But, of course, if you need sperm for an IVF treatment, masturbation is required. Um, in some Muslim cultures, as uh, the WHO pointed out, um, they're against egg and sperm donation because children must have what they call known parents. That biological relationship is important. It's necessary. And 
There's even hurdles to getting help. Uh, this was talked about in a couple of the articles we read where Westerners, for instance, have little sympathy for countries or cultures that they view uh, very in a very self-centered way as being overpopulated anyway. This is something that Dr. Mahmoud Fatala uh, talked about in the WHO article. He said if couples are urged to postpone or widely space pregnancies, it's imperative that they should be helped to achieve pregnancy when they do decide in the more limited time that they have a, uh, available. And basically this goes back to what um, one OBGYN in South Africa described as a fertility paradox where you have both high fertility rates and high infertility rates. And those fertility rates really depend on, again, the use and desire to use family planning services, uh, what your preferences are for family size. Uh, for instance, East Africa has a much higher rate of family planning and contraception use, whereas West Africans still tend to prefer the larger families. But then those high infertility rates come from everything we've been talking about, the health issues, the untreated STDs. And when you talk to infertility treatment proponents who are over in these developing countries, they note that, hey, guys, IVF does not contribute to overpopulation any more than saving lives with vaccination does and both alleviate suffering. So why would we not try to help establish whether clinics in general or fertility treatment specialists specifically? But the thing is, you know, we've just been talking for the past few minutes about these situations happening in areas where you might not be able to access clean drinking water, much less an IVF treatment. But that suffering and this psychological um, guilt, shame, and also social stigma and taboo around this is almost universal. Because if we look back in the U.S., where IVF and infertility treatments at large might be far more accessible, it's still often such a silent battle. Um, there was an in-depth article that we read actually in Self Magazine, which reported on a survey finding that 61% of the infertility patients they talked to hid their struggle to get pregnant from both friends and family. And more than half of those people reported that it was easier to tell folks that they didn't intend to build a family rather than share their troubles. And that's, I hate that. Oh, God, I, I couldn't believe that when I read that, that it was it's easier just to say, eh. but I mean, I, I can I can believe it, but I can't. Uh, they talked to psychologist Linda Applegarth, who says that having difficulty getting pregnant can cause as much grief as losing a loved one. But it's different. She writes, it's chronic and elusive. There's a fear that life will be eternally empty. Some feel a sense of damage and brokenness, and it goes to the heart of who they are. And she writes about the sense of dread and shame that she sees even in her own waiting room from women who won't even make eye contact with each other and how it's different when you look in the waiting room for people, uh, male or female, seeking treatment for cancer, for instance, where patients will maybe trade stories, will maybe ask each other how they're doing. She's like, there's a distinct difference in a fertility waiting room because it's almost like these these men and women don't want to acknowledge that they're having these struggles. And even when psychological resources are available, infertility patients often don't use them. Um, Applegarth noted that only about 5% of patients in her clinic take advantage of the psychological support services uh, that it offers, despite data showing how helpful that it might be. I mean, we talked a while back now um, about the kind of that mind-body interaction between anxiety, depression, and uh, difficulty getting pregnant as well. Mm-hmm. And a University of Michigan study zeroed in on black women specifically in this country because they're less likely to seek medical help. So their struggles end up overlooked. I mean, this is already an issue where people aren't talking about it, feel they can't talk about it. But when when it comes to African-American women, even fewer are vocalizing their struggle. Ninety six percent of the women that this study talked to reported feeling isolated and lonely during their efforts to get pregnant. And many felt that they needed to take on the burden all by themselves. And it's because of this web of reasons. It's personal shame that we've talked about, but it's also cultural barriers like stigma against talking about your personal business or the expectation that black women should be strong and resilient enough to handle their problems on their own. 
There's also this feeling that from the women that they talk to uh, of abnormality for not being able to get pregnant. And this goes back to what the authors discussed as the internalization of stereotypes about African-American women's hyperfertility or belief in a black fertility mandate. So a lot of women of whatever race, age, background report feeling pressure of the motherhood mandate that you're a woman, you should have babies, have lots of babies, go forth and be multiply and be fruitful. And this was also the case for these uh, University of Michigan research participants that they felt like, well, um, you know, I'm a, a an African-American woman. I'm a black woman. I'm supposed to have lots of children or that's common in this culture or it's expected of me. It's, it should be easy for me to get pregnant. Exactly. And so a lot of them told the researchers that infertility is not something that's supposed to happen to me. It's something that happens to rich white people who can, you know, pay all this money to have treatments done. Well, and speaking of, you know, the, the wealth factor, I mean, that absolutely is one of the reasons why uh, women of color are less likely to seek treatment. But there's also the issue of having tense relationships with doctors. Yeah. I mean, this is something that if you start looking in medical studies about like patient doctor interactions, um, things do shift when uh, it is a white person sitting on the exam table versus people of color. But regardless of race, women dealing with that motherhood mandate that you described, Caroline, that every woman should have kids or that if you don't have kids, then you are somehow less valuable or a less than woman. Um, that is a really powerful myth that uh, I think is really easy for us to believe because it's seen as just this basic feminine act. It's just something that's inevitable. You know, we take birth control in order to not get pregnant. All Mm -hmm. we're taught a lot of times in at least American sex education classes is that, you know, uh, if we have sex, then automatically we're going to get pregnant. So it's no surprise then that we have so many misconceptions about a, how challenging it can be to get pregnant and how common infertility is. And I think that this is part of what should be considered comprehensive sex education, ongoing sex education. Yeah. And what all this boils down to basically is that this constant shame and overwhelming stigma contributes to women not talking about their experiences, women and men not sharing their experiences, which then translates into a lack of advocacy on a governmental level. I mean, if people aren't talking about it the same way that they talk about breast cancer, for instance, there's not as much of a push for research dollars or for answers and solutions. Um, Barbara Kalura, who's the executive director of Resolve, the National Infertility Association based in Virginia, says we can only get a handful of our own volunteers to speak out because of the shame. And because we have so little patient advocacy, we have so little progress. And I highly recommend that if you or someone you know struggles with this issue, you go over to Resolve's website. It's a very comprehensive resource. It talks about everything from the actual infertility struggle to mental health issues to talking about issues of insurance coverage. Um, so it's definitely a great resource. But this is yet another women's health issue where we see so much, so much shame and internalization of, of something that your body's doing and, or your partner's body is doing. And we can all benefit from having a wider, more a, a wider and louder conversation about it. Yeah, I mean, and it's a women's health issue, but it's also a men's health issue as well. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, men's silence around it, too, because one of the studies we looked at evaluated the psychological impacts of infertility for both men and women. And while women in the study were likelier to experience negative psychological repercussions, many of the men did as well. So as with our conversation about, say, miscarriage, it's definitely something, um, I mean, again, we, we're now talking more in straight couple context, but it's still something that men need to feel more welcome and comfortable talking about as well, because, you know, a third of the time it could be their bodies, which uh, might be causing the issue. But Caroline, before we wrap up, I did want to ask your opinion on something that came up in our research about infertility being considered a disability, which some think would be 
uh, helpful for getting more insurance coverage for infertility treatments. But when I read that, I my my instinct was to not entirely agree because it seems like classifying infertility as a disability only reinforces the idea that it's women's role and purpose to reproduce. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a conversation that literally happens anytime anything's classified as a disability because it almost makes it sound like this defines you. And, you know, what your body does does not define you. You're, you're more than your body. Um, that being said, you know, someone who doesn't struggle with these issues, it's, it's hard for me to weigh in other than to say if something is classified a certain way, according to the government that helps you get insurance coverage, I see that as a positive. Um, it's, I think it's less so in our conversations that we had around pregnancy and the way that like maternity leave and paid family leave happens. But as far as language goes, I think it's a shame that it has to be called a disability for that very important coverage to happen. Yeah. I mean, because I just wonder, um, and, and listeners, I really hope that some of you can fill us in on this. I wonder about people who find out that they are infertile and they're okay with it. And whether that leads to conflicted feelings as well, because there is an assumption that if you are infertile, that it is a shameful and sad tragedy. But I have a feeling that there there are people who are, are totally fine and live perfectly happy lives. So, mm-hmm. I mean, again, this is just I mean, I, I'm just I'm I'm genuinely curious to hear from people what these experiences are, because I don't know. Yeah, at all. Um, so listeners we definitely want to hear from you on this issue because, again, this is something that we don't talk about nearly enough. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from April in response to our knitting episode. Uh, she says, let me start by saying how much I enjoy your podcast. Thank you, April. We enjoy having you listen. Uh, she says, as I was listening to the podcast on knitting this evening, you mentioned knitting during the World Wars was propaganda. This could not be further from the truth. From the Civil War to World War I and World War II, the knitting of socks was very important. Foot rot was a constant battle. Soldiers could not march and walk long distances without good socks that helped keep the moisture away. Can you imagine trying to walk in military boots with wet, holy socks or even without socks altogether? Soldiers had blisters and would develop infections. Their feet would literally rot. The knitting of socks was as important as the recycling of metal or the rationing of sugar. It was not just a way to keep the women and children busy or make them feel like they were part of the war effort. It was an important part of the war effort. I am a knitter and a feminist, and at the age of 41, I am currently working on my dissertation for my Ph.D. in history. My focus is women's history, and my dissertation is actually focused around women and the crafts that bring them together, things such as knitting and sewing. I also am an adjunct history teacher at a local junior college, and I teach a women's history class I put together. In this class, we have a section on women and the war effort, and we talk about knitting as a big part of the lives of those at home. Thank you for all the hard work you do. I just felt that you overlooked this one important thing. So thank you for filling us in, April. Well, I have a delightful letter here also about our knitting episode, and it's from Elias who writes, I'm 18 years old, and I actually just started listening to your podcast in December. I'm a big fan of stuff you should know, so I thought I'd give another How Stuff Works podcast a try. By the title, I thought I'd learn about all kinds of interesting secret things my mom never told me, so I was a bit surprised when it turned out to be a podcast about feminism. But I'm so glad I decided to keep listening. Well, before I only had a vague understanding of what feminism really means, after just a handful of episodes, I already feel so much more educated on this social topic and have a much better grasp on its scope and importance. Thanks for being such informative, friendly, and charming podcasters. Well, thank you, Elias. And I think I might be mispronouncing your name, so I apologize um, <laughs> if I am. But anyway, getting on to knitting. Elias wrote, Anyway, the real reason I wanted to email you is because I'm a guy who knows how to knit. You see, a few summers ago, when I was 14, I went to a family camp with my extended family, and one day, we were surprised to find that the arts and crafts staff would be teaching knitting to anyone who'd like to learn. 
Two of my aunts and I thought it sounded like a fun idea, so we gave it a try. But as you were both saying, it's very difficult to learn. The steps were so precise and hard to remember, and I made so many mistakes that my first scarf turned out to be more like a scratchy, rainbow-shaped cloth. Still, it was fun and a little addicting. So when I got home, I looked at the steps on YouTube to really get them down, bought some fresh yarn, and tried again. After a few days, I finally got it. Now I have an awesome black and blue scarf as proof of my dedicated work. So word to everyone, no matter how old or what gender you are, anyone can love to knit. Well, thank you so much for that story and for listening. And thanks to all of you for your letters. Keep them coming to momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about infertility and other topics, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 